0: Hi, I'm Pastor Kenneth Olusaya of the Vivified Ministries, and it is my joy that your heart is awakened to the finished works of Christ with such powerful simplicity. Are you ready? All right, here we go. What happens to people who never hear the gospel? And it could be those who never hear the gospel or those who never hear about Jesus. What happens to them? Like, it's not a case of these people trying to live their life the way they want. They just never knew better uh, than what they know. They just haven't been told the truth. They haven't been exposed. And some people might be asking the question, is it actually possible that people don't know Jesus? You know, is a quick survey was taken uh, they were about to make this movie about jesus um, i think it's called son of god and they did a survey in the uk and they asked some of the kids in the uk who is jesus guys it will blow your mind the kind of answers people gave they're like hmm is it not some actor or something oh jesus you mean jesus a footballer you know in this club and that club some people said oh i knew about him is some historical figure who did sorcery and magic People have it confused. I'm telling you, 12-year-olds, teenagers, people don't know who this man called Jesus is. So look, aside from people who have the wrong idea of who he is, there are people, I believe, and I'm going to talk about this much later, who have not actually heard the name of Jesus. They've actually not been presented the gospel. We'll talk about those people in a minute, but what actually happens to people in general? And this, this trickles down to another question that we need to ask is Jesus truly the only way to God? He, is he the only way to salvation? Is he the only way to an eternity of bliss and joy and happiness? Or Are there other ways? Can we all find our way somehow in this world? We just, by meditation and yoga, we are sent to some spiritual plane and we somehow just know what truth is. And we, we somehow arrive at that place called paradise. Is that how it works? Or is it more streamlined? And we think we're gonna unpack all of this in this evening. So fasten those seat belts, bring out those pens, bring out your books. Let's get into this. When we talk about the issue of you know Christ being the only way to the Father, there are two camps vastly that that, that talk about this thing. Two camps. We have the inclusivists, what you call inclusive. Inclusivism, right? And you have the exclusivists, what you call exclusivism. That's a very tricky word to say. But basically, there are a group of people that believe look, we believe Jesus is the only way to the Father, but it's more all encompassing, more inclusive than most people think. So that's one camp. There's another camp that talks about look, you might think it's as inclusive. As, it, as, as they say, but it's more streamlined than you think. I'm going to unpack these views. Before I do that, there is a theologian called Millard Erickson. And this is what he says. Um, he is late, but this is what he says. What if someone were to throw himself upon the mercy of God, not knowing on what basis that mercy was provided? Right? There's, there's a book he writes, The Christian Theology. He explains it all there. Like, what happens if someone should just throw themselves upon the mercy of God? Not knowing on what basis that mercy was provided, they just threw themselves on the mercy of God. Would not such a person, in a sense, be in the same situation as the Old Testament believers? The doctrine of Christ and his atoning work had not been fully revealed to these people, yet they, they knew somehow that there was a provision for the forgiveness of their sins and that they could not be accepted on the merits of any works of their own. They had the form of the gospel without its full content, and they were saved. Now, we're going to unpack this as we go, but this is the case. Like, can people somehow walk into the mercy of God, not fully understanding what it is, or the semantics of what it is, and the, the terminologies, but somehow, by the mercy of God, are truly saved? So let's examine the two sides of the coin. The inclusivists say this that, and and, and they say this from the the scripture in Romans chapter one from verse 19 to 20, which I think you would know. And this is what they say, you know, it talks about how, you know, from the created order without and and the moral law within, somehow we, we, each person in the world who has both of these things, Who has, you know, the moral compass, you see that more in Romans chapter 2. But this evidence, this empirical evidence in nature that, you know, as, as much as people can see in the world from the things that are created, you can determine the invisible characteristics and the attributes of God, that is sufficient for salvation. And the fact that you can somehow see and sense some moral compass within you telling you, no, no, no. That is wrong. Oh, no, no, this is right. That somehow because of that, there's a witness and an evidence in you that God exists. So the inclusivists say that, look, you have physical evidence. Nature is the greatest evangelist. Tells you about the goodness of God and the magnitude of his design and creativity. But there's also that inner witness, the conscience of your heart, the law written upon your heart, as Paul says, that you have these things to tell you. That God exists, He is kind to you, and therefore that is sufficient for you to be saved. So basically, what they're saying is all they need to know, yeah, is that God exists. All they need to know is that God exists, He's real, He's in He's He's monitoring their conscience, He's in all that we see around us. So the inclusivist believes, look the the barest minimum for a person to be saved is that they know god exists and and they don't refute that they accept it with open arms now the exclusivists will rather say this and and we're going to go i want to show you some scriptures of what ex- exclusivists say and pay attention with me right romans this say romans 1 uh they use the same scripture but say look you inclusivists you've you've kind of belittle the text. You've missed the point. When you go down, you you read it. What they're trying to say is, look, uh, Paul's argument here is not that God's revelation in nature is to save, but that his revelation of that nature is sufficient only to condemn. That's what they say. It's sufficient only to condemn. Look at it. It says that, you know, though the man, for example, some man, maybe you we're on some island, and you saw the turquoise beaches and the white sand beaches. You know, you could walk along it. I walk along it; you could see the the waters, beautiful, the skyline, the palm trees, and you say, "Look, there is there has to be a great grand designer." As you see the shores move back and forth in synchronism, and you see that crash on the on, on the shore and on the shoreline like that in your mind just tells you, "Look, there's some intelligent designer." But the exclusivists, the exclusivists say, "Look, this is not knowledge that is." Sufficient to save is rather knowledge sufficient to condemn you, because it goes on further to say, look, that the one who does this, look, if you somehow suppress the truth after seeing all these things, look, you are without excuse. So the, the the revelation of God in nature on your conscience is a condemnation against you. That look, if you decide to refute that God exists, it's a witness against you that you are foolish and that you were rebellious, and that you rejected God. Do you understand their view? So they use the scripture that, look, at the end of the day, the problem is not just the absence of faith, of something faith, but the presence of something else, which is rebellion. So Romans 1 is not saying, look, you can, oh, look, just by knowing this, you're on board, you're part of the family. He's saying, look, it is too generic to say that. But at the end of the day, this what Paul is saying is, the things you see about god are so evident to you and obvious that you cannot be excused you know god exists so if you're not going to believe god is because you willfully chose not to believe god do you understand that point we go to the second scripture that they use romans chapter 10 it says this you know romans 10 it says look everyone who calls upon the name of the lord will be saved and then how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed. How are they to believe in him who have, they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You read this in Romans 10 from verse 13 to 15, right? And then it goes on verse 17. So faith cometh by hearing and hearing through the word of God, through the word of Christ. So this is the logic of Paul. In Romans 10, he's saying, the only way to be saved is to call on Christ. But how can you call on Christ uh, and the only way by, by, to call on the name of Christ is to believe the gospel. And the only way to believe the gospel is to hear the gospel. And the only way to hear the gospel is that you've been told the gospel. So Paul's argument here is, look, it's it's more streamlined, uh, more streamlined than you think. So for you to be saved, it's the one who calls upon the name of Christ, the one who believes in the name of Christ, right? And, and he likens that, that to call on the name of Christ is to believe the gospel. And to believe the gospel, you have to have heard the gospel, but to hear the gospel, you have to have been preached to the gospel, all right? So this is more specific. as so say, look, it's beyond just knowing that a God somewhere exists, it's beyond that. It's, it's hearing something, believing a message, calling on a name. To be saved, John 14, very common scripture. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? So, this is more specific than it is. The inclusivists will say, Look, we know Jesus is the way, you know, but look, at the end of the day, uh, anyone can can come in, which is true. But, um, you know, they just say, Look, Jesus is always the way to the Father somehow, some way the exclusivists specifically call out that uh, look, it's not just through him, it's through faith in him. There's an active participation of your faith in believing the gospel. Number four. So I'll give you Romans 1, I'll give you Romans 10, I've given you John 14. Now, Acts chapter 4. Um, and look, Peter describes them, and he's talking to the people here. He says, There's salvation in no one else, you know, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved right so he's not just saying that there's no other savior under heaven he's specific there's no other name given to men meaning there's no other person you're talking about the identity and authority of a person it's specific there is none other none other except this person by which men should be saved. So you see that the, it, it's been more streamlined than, than the inclusivists will say. And, and, and number five, Acts chapter 10, it's a story I'm going to come back to, but this is the story of a man called Cornelius. And you know the story of Cornelius, very dramatic, very amazing, Paul, uh, Peter, I beg your pardon, received the vision Cornelius, on the other hand, received a vision as well. And the interpretation came out to be that Peter needed to see Cornelius uh, to, to do a particular thing. And I'll share with you what that thing was. Cornelius was a man who was devout in, in, in the world, a follower of God. He gave alms to the poor. Look, the, the, the moral CV of this guy was top-notch. He was a great guy, and then he was Roman. So he was a Gentile, he was not a Jew. But this was a man who somehow had sought the Lord with all his heart, and God recognized it. The Bible said that. God recognized his heart. This was a man that sought the Lord. This was a man that did good in the sight of the Lord, a a man that was upright, who wanted to do the will. So he recognized there is a God, there was a moral compass within him, and he submitted to it. And god recognized that and and this was a very interesting situation this was post-resurrection of jesus and compels peter to come see this man and this man you know paul comes to see him and just narrating as he's speaking narrating what happened to jesus and how that through jesus and and belief in him there is forgiveness of sins something happens in verse 44 uh, of this chapter the holy spirit falls upon cornelius and all his household everyone It touches everyone, they start to speak in tongues and prophesy. And he was amazed. What is happening here? But the the import of the story is this: right? Cornelius was a Gentile, but somehow he was upright already. Look, when you talk about moral excellence and sincerity of heart, that was this man called Cornelius. But the narrative here tells us that look, if if Cornelius' moral uprightness and excellence was sufficient for him to be saved, there would have been no need for the dual visions to happen to Peter and Cornelius to orchestrate their meeting together for that message of the gospel of salvation and forgiveness to be preached. If if there was no need for that, if, if the moral uprightness of this man called Cornelius was enough, there would really be no need for that. So it becomes clear that even the extraordinary religious sincerity of Cornelius was not enough to save him all right so these are the arguments right these are the arguments that people have uh you know for exclusivity right in terms of the gospel in terms of jesus being the only way why would a man you know called peter travel 30 miles to go see a man called cornelius it's just unfounded right so let's get into it now so we have both views we know what people would say right and maybe you've been on one of these parts of of the coin one of the sides of the coin i want us to examine scriptures together i want us to then see if truly jesus and 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 believing in him is is just all inclusive and and the barest minimum is just knowing that god exists or there is more to it that that there is a part of conscious belief in jesus christ and then what happens to those who never even hear about such a Jesus Christ. What happens to them? What is their fate? So let's go to possible people that um, never hear the gospel. Who are those people actually that never hear the gospel? If you're listening to me right now, the odds are you've actually heard the gospel. If you heard John three sixteen preached to you at any point in time in your life, you have heard the gospel. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You get to live forever. That is good, absolutely good news. You did not deserve it. God loved you. He did something about he died for you, gave his life. And he didn't just stay that he rose to prove that there was life after death. So you will not taste of the punishment of sin, but you will live with him for an eternity. That blows my mind every time I hear it. And I hope it does something in you, in your heart. And when you hear of the goodness of God, it shakes you in your boots. You you have such a privilege hearing this good news. Oh my goodness, it's crazy. It's beautiful. But there are actual people who maybe may not have heard the gospel in that way. So let's, let's talk about three people. I'm going to give three categories of people that may not have heard the gospel. Number one. And this is one that is highly debated did they hear the gospel did they not hear the gospel I'll start here the Old Testament folks the Old Testament people the Old Testament folks those uh, especially talking about the Jews now right the Jews the ones that God called like in those days Jesus was not born on, he was not yet born he was not on the scene he came many years after he was born uh, you know much later than the time of abraham and noah and all these people uh you know so so wh- how exactly can we put these people uh and put them in the category of people who have heard the gospel so what happened to the old testament folks is what we're going to check out you know how can god actually judge them if they never saw christ if they never if he wasn't even born in their time how would they be judged what happened to those great people we read about—Noah, Moses, Abraham, David? What happens to the prophets? What happens to the judges? And not just the big boys and big guys. What happens to the actual people? What happens to those who followed? Who, those who were just ordinary people, if I may use that term usefully? What happens to them? They didn't know Jesus. They didn't see Jesus. Or maybe that's what we say. But did they didn't know Jesus? Did they believe in Him? What is their faith? Right, what is their faith? Look at Abraham. We're going to talk about a man called Abraham. We talk about uh, some of these saints, and I'm going to show you a scripture, and, and that can give us an idea of what actually happens to these people. Maybe you're concerned about them. Like, I haven't served God for that long. That's just it because they didn't believe in Jesus. That's their faith. But let's check it out. Abraham's story in Genesis 12, verse 3 it says, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And this is reiterated in Galatians chapter 3, where the promise of God was revealed to Abraham on this day that look through you, through your seed, and all that will come from you, through a particular person, a seed, who is Christ. If you read the book of Galatians 3, we don't have the time, but you read it through, you'll see that there was a specific seed through you and your seed, all nations of the world will be blessed. Many people think in line of material blessings and financial blessing and wealth. But this was a different world. It was the promise of the Spirit through faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.14 tells us that. So this was an import that, look, the promise given to Abraham was not just specific to him being a blessing financially. It wasn't about that. It was talking about something different. The seed of Abraham through which everyone will be blessed. So it was a promise of salvation through someone in his lineage, someone who you could trace back to Abraham and say, oh, this is what God was saying, that those, both the Jews and the Gentiles could participate in God's family as one. They could all be blessed because of their faith, right? Abraham was a man who was counted for righteousness, not because of what he did, but because of his faith in the Lord. And he was the example for all who will follow, who would be righteous by that same faith. I hope this is clear. When you talk about Moses, what we see about Moses, look at John chapter 1, verse 45. Philip find, finds uh, Nathanael, and this is what he says. We have found him, of whom Moses in the law... And the prophets did write Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. We found him. We've been looking for the Messiah. He was spoken about that prophet who was said to rise in the book of Exodus. The, the prophet who will rise again and lead God's people. There will be one whose scepter will be righteousness. There's one coming. This is the person that the prophets had spoken about. Moses and the Lord spoke about him as well. The lamb that will be slain. And Luke 24, 27 talks about it. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted himself in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is post-resurrection. Our Lord Jesus explained that, look, the prophets knew me. Moses knew me. They didn't know my name particularly. Maybe they didn't know that I would be Yeshua or Jesus. But they knew me. <laughs> they interacted with me. They foretold me. To the people when Moses put that rod and and the serpent on on that brazen rod that whoever looked on that when when that that structure was lifted up on anyone who looked upon it they received healing they were saved from those snake bites and they testified of me they spoke about me they might not have seen me in some some nice appearance but they knew me at the transfiguration Moses and Elijah Appeared to him, literally representing the law and the prophets, appeared to him, and they had this discourse about the sufferings which he was going to suffer. Look at that beautiful stuff. So they knew. What about David in Psalm 22 when he talks about dogs and encompassed around me they pierced my hands and my feet talking about the sufferings and and the persecution of Jesus talked about him my my god my god why have you forsaken me I've counted all my bones literal prophecy divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my clothes and my garments these were the prophecies that came from this folk they knew the Christ in fact 1 Corinthians tells us that the rock right the rock which they followed—I think it's Second Corinthians, if I'm not mistaken—the rock which Moses, you know, struck and water poured out was Christ. How <laughs> it baffles me—they knew him. And the thing is, everyone who believed the promise that God was taking them from the place of captivity, just like we were captive in our sin, to a promised land where we are free to love and worship God in the liberty that he provides. Those who believed in the promise, they were saved. Literally, even physically, when you look at the narrative in the wilderness, it was those who did not rebel, but those who trusted God. That were preserved. Do you realize that? Literally, at, at Mount Sinai, when Moses received the law and the commandments, you know, some people had already been swayed. They had started dancing. They had built this graven image, a golden calf. Started worshiping it. And Moses gave them an ultimatum: Look, you cannot serve God and serve idols. If you are on the Lord's side, say so. And if you're not, say so. Those who were not on the Lord's side, they perished in the wilderness three thousand of them perished and and at the point those who rebelled and complained and groaned and did not believe they perished in the wilderness but God preserved a remnant of them those who actually believed and that's it that's a picture of where we are now those who believe are preserved those who rebel perish the same narrative with the flood same narrative. So here are people who had types and shadows of things to come. They had an, an image of Christ. When they offered lamb sacrifices and submitted themselves to that ordinance. When, when they did the this, this circumcision. When you cut away the, 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 the unnecessary or needed flesh. where they observed the Passover. These were shadows and types of this person called Christ who was our Sabbath. Which they observed as well. And so they knew him in types and shadows. They didn't have the full picture as as the theologian Erickson said. But the point is this, they knew him. And everyone who believed in the promise of him, those who believed that, look, look, do you hear the testimony of Joseph, a man like Joseph, that he said, look, I know that you will go to where God has promised. So when I die, carry my bones with you and take me to that, take me to that place because I know God is taking you there. That's faith. I'm going to read a scripture to just help you understand this. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. Open your Bibles there right away. Hebrews chapter 11, chapter uh, verse 32. I beg your pardon, too, verse 40. Beautiful scripture. I'll try and read as quickly as I can. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon. Barak, not Obama. Samson and Jephthah. <laughs> Samson is here, by the way. And if you've followed this ministry, you know my position on, on the man called Samson. You can refer to last year's Audacity Conference about David and Samuel and the prophets. And when you look at this lineup, they're not perfect people, these are imperfect people. David made the cut. <laughs> as messed up as his story could be sometimes, look, David was a man who understood the love and kindness of God. All right? So these people, he said, look, who through faith, these guys conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained more was promised, shut the mouth of lions. Who are we talking about? Daniel quenched the the fury of the flames. What the Hebrew men, right? Escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. You're talking about people like Gideon. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. and, And there were others who were tortured. Refusing to be released so that they may gain an even better resurrection. Do you know what it means for you to suffer torturing and say, look, I'm not even going to save myself. I'm not going to look for an escape plan. I know there's a better resurrection, so do whatever you want with me. But in killing me, you never kill me. You never end my life. It's an endless life. Glory to God. That is true faith. That's what hope being alive looks like. And look at what it says, verse 36. Some faced jeers and flogging. That reminds me of a man called Jeremiah. Jeremiah was flogged. Many of you might not know this. He was flogged. He was whipped because he had prophesied the damnation that was going to come upon the people because of their rebellion. He was flogged. And even chains and imprisonment. He was imprisoned as well. They were put to death by stoning. He's talking about Zechariah. He was stoned to death. They were sawed into two, split in half. He's talking about Isaiah. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskin, goatskin, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. You're talking about Elijah. After he had just fasted for 40 days and 49, he went to a cave to hide. But look at verse 39. Look, look, look at this. Verse 39 to 40. Pay attention. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them... Received what had been promised. What? So they had labored, they had believed, they had done all these things, but they had not received what had been what was promised. What was promised to them? Do you know? Verse 40: Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. This is incredible. What this tells me is this, that just as God honors our faith in Christ Jesus who came, he honored their faith in Christ Jesus who was to come. So at the end of the day, you see that Christ is the confluence of salvation to all in the old and the new dispensation. He's the synosure of of, of salvation. Jesus is the synosure of salvation. He's the central connecting network. For those in the old and the new. He's saying look. That they without us cannot be made perfect. So we will be made perfect. Because of our faith in Jesus who came. But it's not without them too. Because they believe the promise that was to come. We've seen the promise. We've experienced the promise. And I'm telling you. There's even much more to see. Much more to experience. There is. But the beautiful thing is this. God honored their faith, those who were even laymen, not, let's not even talk about the prophets or the judges, those who followed instructions, literally, who did not harden their hearts, those who, who submitted to the leadership of their leaders, Moses and, 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 and Abraham, those who followed the promise, they' are counted worthy of this. They without us will not be made perfect. Look at First Thessalonians chapter four from verse 15 to 17. I'm going to read this. Open your Bibles. You need to see this. Again, I'm talking about Old Testament folks, especially the Jews, right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, from verse 15 to 17. It says this. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Who are those who have fallen asleep? You have an idea, right? Those who slept, the word slept is a temporary thing, and it's talking about death, but those, the, the death of someone who actually believed. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend with hev- from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the tr- sound of the trumpet of God, and, this, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then, so dead in Christ, I believe he's talking about those who passed away, but believed in the Lord Jesus or the promise that was to come. Verse 17, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we will always be with the Lord. That tells, it's a glimpse of what we just read in Hebrews 11, that they without us will not be made perfect. There's a perfection where we'll be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, but they will rise up first. We who are alive will meet them in the sky and we'll be perfected together. And receive the inheritance of the saints. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Praise be the name of the Lord. So you understand that, right? Those who were Jews who received the covenant, the promise, they were, they were prepared for a time where the, where the promise would come. Maybe they, they, some they didn't even see the reality of it. They saw it in types and shadows, but they believed, however. And Christ still is the center of their belief. Right. They might not have known his name, but he was the one who was promised, the one who would lead them out of captivity. And they had messianic types from, from, from the very beginning. Noah was like a messianic type. Moses delivered them from slavery. It was a messianic type. Do you understand? Joshua, same thing. So they had that pattern. Samson, they had this pattern of people who were messianical, and, and they were waiting for the one who ultimately delivered them from the oppression of sin. Praise the name of Jesus. All right, now, but what about the Gentiles from the time of Adam to Christ? What happens to them? Those who are not part of the covenant, the Amalekites, there's people from all over the world who didn't have a relationship with God or we, we see they didn't have a covenant with God. What happened to them? And we're going to read Romans chapter 2. I, I find a lot of people not talking about this particular one. So I want to address it. Romans chapter 2. It's a long read, but I'm going I'm to skip a lot. Right? I'm going to skip a lot just so that we can finish on time. All right, so let me, let me read this. Um, Romans chapter 2, I'm read, I'll read from verse 11. Right, verse 11. Romans 2 from verse 11, he says, For God does not show favoritism. He does not, really. He doesn't. Verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, (laughs) but it is those who actually obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles, look at verse 14, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law unto themselves even though they do not have the law they are a law unto themselves they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them verse 16 this will take place on the day when god judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. So what can we see from Romans chapter two here? We're seeing that there are those people who are with, without the law. Who are those? The Gentiles, right? And what did these guys have? If they didn't have the law, what did they have? They had their conscience, their moral compass that everyone around the world seems to have. Of course, it's sometimes shaped by the culture they're in. Right? where some things are allowable in some cultures, and some cultures is not allowable, it feels weird, but there, is, there, are, there are instinctive, innate things that we know to be right or wrong all across the world. We know. And so um, this is what these guys had as a regulation for their actions and their thoughts. And then we had those who had the law, which are the what? The Jews. The Jews had the law, right? And they were to obey the law. They were going to be judged by the law. And Paul says, those who didn't have the law will be judged not with the law, but with their consciences. Right? So they won't be condemned for failing to keep God's law because God gave the law, right, to Moses. The Gentiles didn't have that. All right? So it's kind of this uh, narrative. Romans 5.13 talks about this, right? For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. That's Romans 5.13. There was sin already in the world before the law came, but sin was not counted where there was no law. So how do you know something is wrong if the law was not given? Do you understand? All you had was your moral compass, and God had to give. Do you know what it means for you to know, for you to have to tell someone not to do a thing, even though naturally they should know not to do it, right? So at the end of the day, people did not even need the law to be honest, right? Anyone who was truly submissive to the inner workings of the the moral compass God put within them, they didn't really need the law. But the the purpose of the law, the Bible reveals it, was to restrict their sinfulness. They were so sinful. So let's put laws in place to, to make sure that this thing resets, to make sure that you people get back to your senses. Do you understand? And to let you know, to start to actually put sin and impute sin into your account the law was not meant to save these people was the bible tells us in galatians it was meant to be a guardian Galatians four, a guardian for these people to to lead them to the point where they will meet and receive christ so here's what i'm trying to say right at the end of the day before christ came to the scene the gentiles what they really had to go on was their moral conscience what god had already put within them as as a testimony as a witness um, of, of God and, 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 and a witness that, look, you, you can be wrong, you can be right. That knowledge of good and evil, basically, right? So that's what he had. But look, the, the narrative changed when Christ came to the scene. You see that that in Acts, you know, in the case of Cornelius, you know, he, he started to become the, the pattern, Acts chapter 10, he became the pattern for what Gentiles should have you know, in terms of their relationship with God. Now, the you know, the, the book of Colossians talks about the middle wall of partition, how that has been taken away. Ephesians talks about it as well. The, the middle of wall of partition has been taken away, has been broken. So now Jews and Gentiles can partake in the commonwealth of God. They can partake in relationship with God. There is no separation anymore. And that was done through Christ. But before this, they had the law and they had their conscience. But now in Christ, guess what? We see the example when Peter went to meet Cornelius and presented the gospel and he was saved. And the the Roman jailer who imprisoned Paul and Silas was saved. And the Ethiopian eunuch who Philip encountered was saved. And we start to see the full picture of this plan God was weaving into motion all along. That the Gentiles were meant to be a part of this as well. At the appointed time that Christ could open the door for them to come in, which is ultimately the goal here. Acts chapter 17, verse 30 he says this, you know, when Paul went to the Athenians, people in Athens in Greece, this is what he says to them. Acts chapter 30, 17, uh, verse 30 to 31, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked. What were the times of ignorance? What were the times of ignorance? Those days where they didn't have the law as a guardian, uh, as a guardian where they did not have uh, anyone to show them the truth and the light, The days of ignorance, God has overlooked them now. But this is what he's doing. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Christ has opened the way. So he's saying he's calling people uh, everywhere to repent. Everywhere, not just in Jerusalem. Everywhere all over the world. Repent from your sin and look to the Lord Jesus. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead, talking about Jesus. He will judge the world, you know, but look, this is the time to repent, to change your mind about this. This is God's way, righteousness by faith has always been that way. So at the end of the day, it's not by your good works of the law that you are saved, not by your conscience. your conscience can't save you, but what it does is reveals sin, right? It reveals that, oh truly. There is sin. It also reveals that there's some residue from the fall of man. That somehow there is still good. We are still capable of doing good, but it does not require. uh, It does not satisfy. I beg your pardon. The requirements of the law. It doesn't. It does not satisfy satisfy the requirements of the law. Even those who received the law could not keep to the entirety of the law. So, what happens to those before Christ? I believe God in his mercy, and, and Paul, to be honest, Paul doesn't seem to answer this question as clearly as we want him to, but he kind of points us in the right direction. What he does is he tells us to remember that God alone knows all things, right? God alone is both full of justice and mercy, and he's the only one who knows what is in a person's heart. So, I believe by the mercy and the justice of God, he will do right to those who had a moral compass to guide them just like the Jews had to guide them. He will do right by them uh, to 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 judge them rightly. I want to believe it. I wish Paul was more clear what happened because at the end of the day, it's Christ that will still judge his people. He says that clearly, you know, at the end of the day. But I believe Cornelius set that pattern and, and, and the Ethiopian eunuch set that pattern uh, for what, Gentiles coming to faith would look like, but that was post uh, the resurrection of Jesus. All right. I hope that was clear. I hope that helps. Look, it's a very complicated scripture Romans too, but I hope this brings some clarity to you. We're going to go to the next group of people. Oh, I wish I had so much time. We'll go to the next group of people. And this is people of determination. Uh, they're called POD or sometimes called disabled or uh, and, and look, it's, it's evolving. To be more politically correct, you call them people of determination, but it, it comprises people who are handicapped or challenged in one way or the other, people with special needs. And I'm going to put in the same category, infants. I'm not saying they're on the same level, but I want to lump them together. What happens to people of determination and what happens to infants? And the reason why I'm doing this is because I want you to understand what happens to those who not because they don't want to, uh, but they just can't make a decision on whether to believe or not to believe. Do you understand? So, uh, But I want you to understand that this is a very broad category. When you talk about people of determination, um, it's a very broad category. You're talking about people who are deaf, who are dumb, who are crippled, who are bedridden, who are mentally handicapped and challenged. So it's a wide variety, but I want to streamline it to more specifically uh, people who have some mental challenge. The ability to process and believe and think and decide. uh, Those are the people I want to talk about. But what's your first response? Let me ask you when you hear this. Because many times we want to have the, the answers in the name of social justice. We just talk about... What happens to this? What happens to people who are this? But I really hope that your first response is compassion, truly. You're not just asking for facts and to add to your vocabulary and your theological uh, repertoire. You're not doing all of that. You really want you know, to see these people be better. You're, you might be privileged to have your body parts intact and your mind and mental health intact, but not everyone has that privilege. But I hope that when you ask questions about what happens to them, you're not just asking for statistics and for upgrading your wealth of knowledge, but you actually truly have compassion for these people, right? That, look, God cares about them. When you look at scriptures, it's it's those who are in a place of lower privilege. You see God's heart really beam for, not that he doesn't love all people, but you see him being a father to the fatherless, you know, and and, and to the orphans and a husband to the widows right i believe that is our god so i believe that same amount of compassion should flow when we handle things like this not just in terms of uh, handling it mechanically right that compassion fill our heart the second thing you need to know and i think is important is that i believe the majority of people in this wide category um have some awareness of their actions so when you talk about someone who is I, i hear people ask what happens to deaf people who never hear the gospel should be they have to hear the gospel but you forget that deaf people and maybe even dumb people uh, people who can't speak they communicate they actually communicate I remember when I used to give this definition back then someone asked me define the gospel and I'll define the gospel and say the gospel is this is those who believe you know it's a message of good news uh, for those who believe in Jesus and His sacrifice uh, who receive, you know, righteousness by, by their faith in his, his work, um, and, and, he, and either they receive this through, this is how I always put it, they receive this through hearing or sign language. <laughs> and people were like, what? Who defines the gospel that way? And I don't know why I did it, but I think there was just a consciousness in me knowing that, look, even deaf people uh, can believe the gospel. Their disability... Does not shut their mental capacity and ability to communicate doesn't shut that out at all deaf I watched the whole show I remember i watched watching this show growing up where I even learned some a s l how this is thank you how you know you can do all these signs. I learned all of this um through watching the shows and seeing this community of deaf people who could actually communicate. You can sign the gospel and someone actually believes if they can if they can understand what you're saying and the power of the Holy Spirit convicts them and they put faith in Jesus, they are saved and can be saved. All right. But I'm I'm talking more about people who are not conscious. So we're going to go to the people who are not conscious of their actions. They're not aware. Uh, when you talk about people like that, well, what should your response be? Right. I, I honestly think that when we think about people who don't have that ability, I think first and foremost, before anything else, you know, if we have the opportunity to be in the space with them, is to actually seek their healing, to to seek it out, to pray it out, to help them to a place of normalcy, if we have that influence, if we can. Right. I really do believe that these people can be better. They can. I remember someone who I met who had some mental challenges. Um the of course the doctors would diagnose it as being bipolar uh, or schizophrenic. Um, I think they called it, uh, what's it called? Aggressive schizophrenia or something. And this person you know, would lose control. And the way the person described uh, it and the doctor described it was that this person just dis- loses control of their actions. They are not conscious. They black out. It feels like something else controls them. Immediately, I sensed that I knew <laughs> this is not normal, right? I'm, I'm, I'm saying this so that you don't just see it through one lens that, oh, it's a medical condition. There's nothing that can be done. They are screwed. No, they, something can be done. And, and I laid my hands on this person and I said, be healed in the name of Jesus. And that was it. This person was healed of that affliction, that demonic attack, and they were well, they were conscious of their actions. They knew what they were doing again. So, uh, I think a good response when we think about these things is to, see if we have that influence, seek their healing or their treatment to normalcy. So people can be treated, they can go through therapy, they can be better, so they have full control of their actions, they are aware of their decisions, and it just helps. But what happens to those who maybe somehow never get better, they don't have that access to good medical care or you know, the gifts of the spirit? What happens to them? We're going to talk about that in a minute. And, and I want to talk about infants, right? When it comes to children, uh, the truth is that every child <coughs> uh, is different. Uh, when, you talk, when we talk about children, we, we start to talk about the age of, of accountability. What is that age? Uh, the Jewish community says that the age is age of 13, when the, the, the boy goes through his bar mitzvah, he turns from a young boy into teenagehood, uh, and then becomes a man at the age of 13, actually. So, but but what exactly is the age of accountability? I've seen kids who are five years old uh, be told, don't, Juno, will you drop that? And Junior is looking like, he 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 he. And he knows he's wrong and does it some more, and you tell him don't touch that and does it some more and you know there's just that consciousness they know what is right they know what is wrong when you look at junior you know that african stare that african mother's there you just look and you just you just adjust yes ma yes ma sorry ma i didn't know ma you know at age of three four i've seen it and some don't get to that until they are eight i've seen it it varies and i think it's it's very wrong to then say look there's a standardized age that once you pass that age, God can judge you now. I don't really believe that. But one thing is clear, I'm gonna list about four points about children. One thing we need to realize is when it comes to children, the truth is that, and this is why I said throw out sentimentality, right? You know, sentiments, throw that all out. There are facts. And the truth is this, I believe that every child Right, we call children innocent. We say, "Oh, what an innocent child!" And when we say that, we really mean in terms of intentions and actions. Right, this child has not really done anything to want to hurt someone. Right, but of course, sometimes we see those tendencies. But and, and that's why we see when you see tendencies of children misbehave uh, without even being taught to misbehave. When they bite and they fight and they're stingy and they do all sorts of things, it's because of something David said in, in Psalm fifty-one, verse five. Surely I was sinful at at birth. I was conceived in sin. I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David said that. He could tell that something was different. I was I I I I tend when you left me alone, I tended to a place of decadence versus a place of discipline and excellence and good behaviour. And Romans chapter 5, verse 14 describes it this way. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So, look, you didn't even have to sin in the same way Adam sinned, in terms of disobedience. Death and sin, you know, death reigned over all, uh, even those over those whose didn't even sin in that way. So you didn't have to do anything uh, to be part of that, Bubble of sin, that fall um, that Adam had triggered. So that's one thing to remember. Children, as much as they're innocent in terms of intentions and actions for a while, they were actually conceived in sin. Number two. Number two. Um, some believe that those who die before reaching that age of intellectual or moral accountability are automatically saved by God's grace. Um, and the reason is simple: that if someone is truly incapable of making the decision whether for or against Christ to believe or not to believe, um, then one is extended God's grace and mercy. And, and one of the most renowned preachers of his time, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, this is what he says: that you know, he says, "I rejoice to know that the souls of all infants, as soon as they die." speed their way to paradise. Think what a multitude there is of them. Right? So the Bible does not directly address any such age of accountability, but uh, I mean there's a verse that kind of speaks on this issue, which we read earlier, Romans 120, that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, eternal power and divine nature can be clearly seen. So clearly seen, clearly perceived, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So if you're able to get to a point, I believe, where you clearly see that there is a God and you understand his majesty and his wisdom and his beauty and his, his awesomeness, from that you can understand and comprehend, I believe you've come to a place where you are aware and where you can be accountable, where you can distinguish between good and wrong. So, if you know, I, I, many people say, "Look, if you've not reached the stage where you can make those decisions, and sadly a tragedy happens, you pass away. What happens? What happens to miscarried babies? What happens to abortions? Um, you know, so so these are the real questions that we need to ask, All right, And I hope you're we're getting closer to an answer, verse." Uh, number Three, I beg your pardon. The third point I want to mention regarding infants is um, I think I see this anyways, and some people agree that there is some sort of link between the age of accountability and and the covenantal relationship that the the children of Israel had with the lord and i 'll explain what I mean so. Um, in that time, the old covenant, there was, a, there was one covenant specifically that was established with Abraham where on the eighth day, the, every male child would come into covenant with God. How? By circumcision. You can read it in Exodus, I think, 12 and also Leviticus 12, actually. When you read the scriptures, you see that, look, all that a child needed to enter into covenant relationship with God was circumcision. And this was something that was totally out of the child's control. Uh, it was performed on the eighth day you know, after birth. No other requirement was imposed on that child just to go through the circumcision. So some people link it and say, oh look, at the end of the day, the, the child didn't have any say in the matter for that to be established. Although some people have abused it and you know, you start to see child baptisms flow into this. People sprinkling babies when they're born saying, we sanctify you in the name of the Lord so you are saved. Um, no, if the child can get to a point where they actually believe, they need to make that step of decision. Uh, but many people believe that, look, if you're not able to make that step of decision, uh, just for the very fact that God is merciful and you know, there really wasn't a requirement uh, for those children in that time, except for what their parents did to establish those covenants, then uh, that same principle can be applied. And the fourth thing I can say is this when it comes to children. I'm getting somewhere. Um, I'm going to use the, um, there's a very common scripture that supports this age of accountability concept in 2 Samuel. Uh, Many of you know the story. David saw this woman called Bathsheba having her bath. Right? You know, and saw her, made his way with her, you know, and she conceived. You know, and then he did something bad, couldn't get the actual husband to sleep with her to cover up, kill this guy at the at vanguard of the war. And then what happens? You know, there's a, there's, a, should I say, a predicament, consequences that come. Nathan tells him, you're going to lose this child. This child is going to die, Right. You made a mistake, that, and, and the the sword will not depart from your house, and all these other words of judgment and everything. But look at something that happens in this second Samuel twelve. You know, uh, when David, you know, heard this, he he mourned, he prayed, he fasted. God, don't take my child. God, don't take my child. Have mercy, have mercy. Right, and then when the child died. David stopped mourning. He stopped crying. Simple, And his servants were surprised. They, they asked him this, what is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and you wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And David responded, he says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Look, I don't want us to dive into why did the child suffer the consequences of the father. That's not the topic for today. We can talk about that another time. What I want you to focus on is this. He says, can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So, I mean, some people say, oh, maybe David was basically just saying, look, I will go to him, meaning I will go to the grave as this child goes to the grave. But the fact that David stopped crying and mourning and was okay, there, there was some sense of peace, a disposition disposition of peace. It almost seemed like he was comforted by that knowledge that look he will see his baby son again, but in a good place. Right? A place of rest, in paradise, in heaven. Right? But at the end of at the end of the day, I think it is it is possible that we can say um that somehow God applies the payment of Christ to young children and others who are incapable of placing faith in him. We see 1 John 2 verse 2 say that, look, Jesus, whom uh, is our mediator, but He he's the propitiation of our sins and not just of us, for the entire world as well. There's there is, there is sufficiency in his sacrifice. He's made it available to all. And there is reason to believe that, look, okay, maybe God, in His mercy, applies the the, the propitiation of Christ to these people who can cannot make that uh, decision, right? But to be honest, the the Bible doesn't specifically say this. I I don't want us to assume this and be dogmatic about it. We have to be careful, right? Right? We need to know where to draw the line. Um, this is just what I believe, right? I don't think the Bible specifically says it, but I think we can imply it from what we see in scriptures like I've just read uh, to us. So I think God extending his grace to those who cannot believe, I think it's consistent with his character. I truly believe that. It, I think it's my position that, that look, like God can apply his, his mercies to those who are children, who are mentally handicapped, um, since they are incapable of understanding their sinful states and their need of a savior right? I think if, if, if someone does not get to a point where they understand their sinful state and their need for a savior, then they are literally incapable of making such a decision. I think that God, consistent in his nature, is able to extend his mercy and grace to them. Of this, we are certain that God is faithful, he is loving, he is gracious, he is kind, and whatever God does is always right and good, and we can see that he loves children. Matthew nineteen fourteen tells us that, that truly, God loves children. It says that, right? Um suffer the little children to come up onto me. Come let them come unto me, Jesus says, For such is the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God is is what children are. It's, it's made of what children are. Not you know, in their in, in their life, in their, their awe struck wonder of the Lord, their humility. Um, and so you can tell that God's heart towards children is beautiful. All right, now let's talk about the third category of people as we round up. Unreached people groups. Uh, if you're talking about people who have probably never heard the gospel, you're talking about unreached people groups. And some of you might not know what what on earth is that? What do you mean by unreached people groups? And Some of you might might find it hard to even believe that there are people who have been unreached by the message of the gospel. Like, are there actual people who have not been, been reached by the message of the gospel? Is that even possible? I will let you know this, that while we have about 8 billion people in the world, there are about 7,000 plus people groups. I think the exact number is about 7,000, um, 7,382 people groups. And I'm not saying 7,382 people, 7,382 people groups, tribes, ethnicities that have been unreached, villages, communities that have been unreached with the message of the gospel. And I got the statistics from JoshuaProject.com. They're an outreach um, com, uh, organization trying to reach the message uh, of the gospel to these people. Right, So it, it's a high number. We're talking about 3 billion people, about 42% of the population. People who have not been exposed, both in the modern and in the uh, and in the urban and the rural areas, uh, people who have never reached with the gospel. It's crazy. Staggering numbers. About 42% of the population. That's crazy, guys. That's crazy. That's crazy. So what happens to them? What happens to them? That's a huge What? That's a huge number. What happens to them? They never hear the gospel. What happens to them? I, I really do think that Paul's encounter with the Athenians sheds light on this. Acts 1730. The days of ignorance, God has looked at, he has overlooked, He has winked at. But now is the time for people to repent. People need to know the truth. There is a Christ. He is the one who saves us from our sins. All right? And and to be honest with you, to be honest with you, uh, I I I I mean there's there's a good there's, there's a beautiful part of this that I've seen, right? What God did in the case of Cornelius is a very interesting case, and this is something that has been common, actually, that's been happening, especially in places like Northern Africa and Southern uh, America, South America, North Africa. We, I, I, Many stories, I kid you not, many stories of people in community Um, who have spiritual encounters like the kind that Cornelius had with that angel. I'm telling you, uh, it's beautiful to see. And it's sad at the same time because you see the supernatural hand of God and his intentionality, but you also see the gaps that have been created when many of us don't take the mantle, when many of us don't rise up to the occasion to spread the gospel. Uh, So it's it's a two-double-edged sword. But what you, what I mean, I can give you a real example of some someone in, in Northern Africa, in the area of uh, Egypt, Morocco, that side, uh, a, a kind of community that was traditional in their practices. And they had this chief priest who would do the sacrifices, who would do the spells and cantations uh, to some uh, to idols. They were very superstitious in that village. And this man, who literally was the leader of the community, but also the what you call the Fab priest, the chief priest, uh, uh, the witch, it was a witch doctor, a chief priest, all in one, received, um, you know, a dream in the night. Had this dream. And, you know, at the time, the people were suffering. There was some outbreak of of a plague. The people were suffering, they were sick, and they needed help, and they're trying to offer the sacrifices, appease the gods, and do all these things. And he receives a dream, and in this dream, There is some man in a shining light. This is the narrative. A man in shining light. Shining light. And this man, the people were about to die. This is the picture. When all the people were about to die and this wave was coming upon them, the cloud, it was like a cloud coming upon them. Then the cloud shifted to this man that was standing in white. And this man standing in white died. And his light transferred to this people, cleared out the cloud, And this man who was once you know who died at the time came back and there was light on both him and the people and in his immediately he woke up all he knew is that there was one of these gods the ultimate god a god good and true who took the cloud away the sickness from them upon himself was killed by it, gave his life for it, but it did not overcome him. He came back to life and all the disease was wiped out. He saved their land. One of these gods, I don't know who they are, but you know who he is, I beg your pardon, but he saved us. And he went about town to town telling them about the dream he had. I think he had it about twice or three times. So it was the same. It was compelling. It was beautiful. He told them, there is a God we serve. He appeared to us and he saved us from our sickness. And truly, not just did, they, did he see that in the dream. It happened in real life. The, 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 the people just got better and better as they drank from the stream, from the rivers. They got better and better. Real life story. And, and, and this is my point. At the end of the day, um, I think some missionaries visited the place. They witnessed to them and preached. And this, is what, this was what their response was. Oh, you know, the, you know people were preaching Jesus. Jesus can save you from your sins. He, will, he died for you on the cross so that you may come to new life. And I said, ah, so his name is Jesus. Ah, we know him. We know him. He saved us already. We just didn't know his name was Jesus. And I've seen this happen consecutively, even in Muslim communities jesus appearing and, and revealing himself to them but the point is this while you might have a glamorous super uh, supernatural encounter like cornelius or like this people that is not what the norm is meant to be the norm is that people go people are released to the nations people go out preach the gospel unashamedly urgently That people's lives are at stake. Three billion plus people, their lives literally depend on you being able to share that light. To share the good news with them. So they might not have known his name was Yeshua or Jesus. But they just know that God came in the form of a man, died on their behalf to save them from their sins. And, and, And that's what's important. But I I believe this, look, if we do not, the truth is this, if we do not have um, this as true, then if these people don't need to encounter the gospel and hear the gospel, then at the end of the day, if, if, if that logic, we should extend that logic, it means, look, if anyone can be saved without hearing the gospel, just because they are morally upright or like good people like Cornelius, it means then by that logic, (laughs) we should make sure nobody hears the gospel. If without the gospel, you can be saved, then we need to make sure not everybody hears the gospel. Do you understand? We need to make sure no one hears the gospel, if we're going to use that logic. But the truth of the reality is this. Look, and I've found this to be true. Anyone who seeks the Lord, as Deuteronomy 4.29 says, anyone who seeks the Lord, if you seek the Lord with all your heart, right, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. If you seek God, you will find him, right? The principle tells us if you truly seek after God, God will make himself known to you. Like Cornelius did, God made himself known to him, preserved him to a point where he would receive the message of the gospel. Hebrews eleven six tells us that, that without faith... It is impossible to please God. For whoever will draw near to God must believe that he exists and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And of course, if you are seeking him, he rewards you with, with himself. He, 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 he makes himself known. But that's the thing. I believe that anyone who truly seeks God, whether you're a Jew, you're a Gentile, whether you're a sinner or a saint... He makes himself known to you. And it's only by accepting his grace through Jesus Christ that, that you can be saved from your sins and, and, and rescued from an eternity apart from God. I truly believe that. But when I think about this, and I, I've talked about these this categories of people who may have never heard the gospel, but one thing that rings in my head is, why would God do this? Why would God hand over one of the most beautiful plans in the entire world? In fact, the most important, most important, most powerful, most beautiful plan of salvation, rescue plan in the entire world. Even Prison break is shaking. The best rescue plan ever. Why would he commit it through such an ineffective method? Like, how can you have a plan that three billion people don't know about? Why would God commit... It's like giving... Oh my goodness, like you almost prized possession into people who have the possibility of failing you. Why would he do that? And I, and I thought about him, like, <laughs> the world entered a pandemic some years ago, a worldwide pandemic. When the vaccine was created, they were able to distribute this vaccine like that, like that so quickly across the world, very quickly. There was a problem, there was a sickness, That had a solution, an antidote, a a vaccine, so to speak. And it was spread around just as fast as the pandemic too was also spreading. It was spread. it was effective. The methods of distribution were quick. But I wonder, like, do we not believe in the solution anymore? Do we not believe in the antidotes that will take care of sins once and for all? Do we not believe it? I don't believe the problem is the potency of the solution but the ineffectiveness and the lack of urgency of the distributors, that's the problem. That's the problem. The problem maybe it's with us. How can three billion people not know the truth? And look, as much as I love for us to come to church with our Sunday best and look the part and take the selfies and live life, look, I wish we could be more externally focused, more, not just translocally, But also thinking outside the unreached. And how am I participating in pushing the word of Christ and the gospel to the unreached? How am I contributing to this? What am I doing? You go to church on Sundays, on Wednesdays, on Thursdays, whatever day of the week you pray. But there are people who don't have the privilege that you have. And you're okay with it. Oh, I'm I'm not just speaking to you, I'm talking to myself. There's work to be done. There's work to be done. Three billion people don't believe the gospel. We have work to be done. There is an urgency to this gospel. If truly there is no name on the heaven and on earth by which men should be saved, (laughs) then we need to show them that name. We need to preach this gospel. We need to pre- not save ourselves. The one who saves his life will lose it. You cannot preserve yourself. You cannot always be comfortable for, for just being comfortable. You must be able and be willing to share the good news. It's good news. You're not delivering bad news. It's good news. Even doctors who sometimes deliver bad news, they, they still have to do it, anyways. What's your excuse? what's your excuse but back to what i i, I was saying and I, I was i digressed a bit but w- what i was saying is this why, why would god do this why would he say that the gospel be delivered through men that had once received the gospel as well why is that the method it's like some network marketing shenanigan that's what it feels like that from 11 marketers let me put it that way they distribute this product to the world why why is that his method I mean, he was all powerful. He rose up from the grave. Why couldn't he just appear in the sky, appear to all people and echo? Hello, my friends, my friends, my friends. And enemies, 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 enemies. All of you, all of you. Believe in me, believe in me. I'm alive, I'm alive. They kill me. You tried to kill me, kill me, kill me. But you're not succeed, succeed, succeed. Here I am, believe in me. Bow down. Every tongue confess and every knee bow. You could do that. But how does he choose? to preserve your free will and to receive your love genuinely through the preaching of the gospel, through an invitation to his love. That's how he chose it, so that he will preserve your free will so that you can love him from a decision, from a choice. That's why. That's why it seems like the distribution is, in, is ineffective. And it's not because the pa- the plan is not powerful, not because... The, the, the power that saves is not powerful. Not that the gospel doesn't have that effect. It's efficacious. The problem is not nearly many people are hearing it. They're not hearing it enough. They're not hearing it with the right heart, with the right tone, with the right attitude, with the right accuracy. They're not. They have a mighty load of work to do. Mighty. Praise in the name of Jesus. Just think about it. Like, maybe that's why. Maybe that's why people don't see it as serious, because you know when the whole COVID requirements and impositions were put in place, you know many people were afraid because okay, what happens? You know, uh, and for those of you who were traveling from one place to the other, you know what it's like. The time you have to pay about a hundred thousand naira uh, just so that you could secure. Uh, your health declaration per time. You have to do the test every time. And those tests were very expensive. You know, so some of you said, let me just get this vaccine so I escaped that. There were fines, there were restrictions that were put upon you because of not taking the vaccine. But God is not fining anyone for, like, he, he's not trying to threaten you or strong arm you. It's an invitation. Of course, there will be consequences for not receiving this invitation. But he wants it to come from a free will from a free will, to receive his solution. Look, he didn't put the sickness there, but there is a sickness, there is sin that man caused, and there are penalties for that, but he wants to, he's made a provision to save man from it. Do you know people who have been given things that are good, but they rejected it? That's it. That's what condemns a person. Not because God wants to condemn you, but you condemned yourself for for receiving his provision To take away your sins so where does this leave us there's an urgency to have people know the truth there's an urgency if we if we assume that people and and that who that never hear the gospel are are granted mercy from god we lose our motivation for evangelism and we run into a terrible problem there's no motivation if if anyone like the inclusivists will say just believing that there is a god somewhere the muslims believe that The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that. The Mormons believe that. Even the devils believe there is a God. (laughs) And they tremble, the Bible says. The devil knows there is a God and he even trembles. He knows the authority. Is that what guarantees the salvation of a person? There's an urgency that we see in the life of Cornelius. To know the truth. To believe in the one and only Christ. For the jailer to receive the message from Paul and Silas... And have his whole household be converted because they believed in the one who saved. Guys, this is important. Like I said again, and I'll say it. Bef- I said it before. I'll say it again. If we believe that those who never hear the gospel are automatically saved, then it, it is logical to make sure that no one hears the gospel, because then there will be a chance they will, they will reject it and be condemned right if there's a chance they will reject it and condemn let's not just even give them that chance you know people have thought that way right if they never have the chance to reject it because they never heard it then 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 let's not even tell them in the first place do you understand that argument i hope you do it doesn't add up there's no urgency anymore there's no point of preaching the gospel if If because we present the gospel, it makes people now aware there is a Christ and they can make a decision and they can choose to reject, then we should not even present it for them to even make a decision at all, right? But that's not true. Everyone needs to hear this good news. It's good news. It's good news. And we can cover the world. We can cover the world. We can reach the unreached. We can. We just need more education, more resources, more people mindful of this. It can be done. It can be done it can be done those who never heard the gospel they they desperately need to hear it they desperately need to hear the gospel paul said this so eloquently and boldly and so daunting first corinthians 9 i think verse 16 it says woe to me if i preach not the gospel woe to me if i preach not the gospel the word "woe" literally means I should be damned, Mugbe <laughs> for me if I don't preach the gospel. But remember that Jesus said this in John four sixteen again, John fourteen six that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Was He lying, or did He did He mean it? Was He just a way, some way, one of the many ways? Was he the way? In Acts chapter four, verse twelve, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under which anyone, any man will be saved. So we must ensure we proclaim his name and his gospel passionately. We need to tirelessly and as urgently as we can. People's lives depend on it. So what happens to those who never hear the gospel? I believe God is merciful. I believe God is kind. I believe he will appropriate what is just and merciful in the same breath to these people. But it places upon us the responsibility to witness, to preach, to share, to remember that no one is too young to believe the gospel and to believe that no one is too far gone in their challenges and disabilities to receive from the Lord to remember that no one is too far unreachable to see the light shine in their city. You can be that light. You must preach this gospel passionately, urgency, urgently. It's a call, it's a clarion call for us to do better. And I hope that in the next decade, we can see that the number has gone down to a 20% and then later a 10% that we can say we've covered the globe, covered the world. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the power that is in the gospel, we can. I am super confident that this has been a blessing to you. Keep praying with it and let these words drive you to action to live in the fullness of the will of God for your life. Stick around for more. God bless you. I love you.